perspective. You may not change either's perspective at the end of the day, but you could still walk away with deep respect for what that other person was bringing. And to me, that can be regenerative. And the only way out is real relational trust building. And, um, and in a sense, that's where genuine equity work begins. And that we need to bring uh, sort of fusion organizing across movements to create a bigger we. And to me, that's the biggest challenge right now. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Curtis Ogden. Curtis has served as Senior Associate at the Interaction Institute for Social Change since 2005, and he brings a wealth of experience in education, community building, leadership development, and program design, as well as an abiding passion for work at the intersection of racial justice and environmental sustainability. For the past several years, he has built a robust practice in support of numerous multi-stakeholder collaborative change networks. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with Curtis and to have gotten to know him over the last couple of years. Curtis is one of those wonderful humans who are able to bring together their mind and their heart and their work. And I must admit, I didn't really know where the conversation would go when we started. Curtis is so able to go in depth and so able to go across breadth of almost any subject. We talk about regeneration and the need to cultivate thriving living systems. We talk about relational trust and how they're so necessary in order to heal the wounds of the past and the present, and perhaps even the future. And the conversation really will provide insights, I hope, to those who live outside the United States to better understand what might be going on in the United States, and also hopefully for the United States to build same bridge to the outside so that we can understand some of the different contexts in which we live, the different challenges that we have. And so we could hopefully create better understanding of the challenges that we face, which sometimes are similar, sometimes are different. I'll leave space for my conversation with Curtis. Do check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars. And here's my conversation with Curtis Ogden. Hey, Curtis, I'm uh, really excited to have you on the podcast. I usually have some kind of theme or idea of where to go, but with you, I feel like you're so prolific and and all the things that you're interested in, there's so many different connections. I feel like you go anywhere. So it's a conversation I'm looking forward to because I have no idea where, where it will end. And that speaks a lot to how versatile you are. I do know that we always start with uh, the two questions that we, we try to ask everyone in order to build a story. And uh, one of those is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, great. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, and uh, so where do I want to take those questions right now, this morning, Monday, January 23rd, 9.20 a.m. Eastern? Um who am I and what story do I want to tell? I mean, I would say that it's a timely question. Um, I'm I'm full on into uh, Jeremy Lent's most recent book. And so, you know, these are these are the questions that he's wrestling with, I guess, along with so many of us. Um, and so there's the simple, I guess, I guess maybe it's a simple answer. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't use that word anymore. But uh, a simple answer of who I am is that I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, a father, I'm uh, a son, I'm a, a husband, I'm um, a brother, uh, certainly uh, I'm an Ogden, at least as dent- identified by my last name, and so there's an ancestry there that goes back quite a ways in the United States, uh, actually back to the 1600s. Uh, on my maternal side, though, that goes uh, not nearly as far back, and more recently, uh, from Germany, the Ukraine, and what is now the Czech Republic. So I'm a, a mixture of those different ancestral lines. Um, I am come from a line of educators, uh, though I'm not uh, a teacher in the sense of a classroom teacher. Uh, I really do feel like I'm fundamentally a, 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 an educator um, and as such also a, a learner. Um, you know, I'm I'm a white man. I'm cisgendered. I'm middle aged at this point, I guess we would say. Um, and um, professionally, I am 
uh, a facilitator, trainer, coach, consultant, um, network weaver, and, and writer. Um, and I do all of those things in the name of trying to create a little bit of a better world, meaning uh, leaving behind something that is a bit more just and hopefully a lot more sustainable as relates to these uh, ecosystems that are life supports. Um, and so the story that um, I want to tell is one of just ongoing learning and development. Um, I've been interested in, in how the world works since I was a little kid. Uh, my parents told me when I was about eight years old, I asked them what planet God lived on, and we got into a big conversation, and it just kind of, you know, has been uh, sort of unfurling from there. Um, but it's not just about learning in a heady kind of way. It's it's kind of a become, in more recent years, a more full-bodied kind of development. Um, I hate to use the word regenerative almost now because it's so overused, but I do feel like that's the other part of the story that I want to tell, which is one of personal regeneration, which is not just something that I do on my own. It's something that I do with others, um, um, from others, because of others, and because I'm not just, you know, clearly this individual body. So that's something I'm full on into my learning around is how do I regenerate um, from things that had happened when I was a kid to uh, things that have happened more recently in my physical body to, um, you know, the cultural things I've absorbed that I feel like I want to leave behind um, in order to be able to uh, sort of burn my keep in place on the planet. Now I'll ask the second question, and I could already see many different places this could take us. But Curtis, how do you define learning? Yeah, you let me know that this was a question that was coming. And it's 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 funny. It's one of these things that uh, I feel like is so familiar and yet, of course, so hard to pin down or define. It's like it's like love. Uh, there's, there's there's almost kind of a um, an indescribability about it. I guess in part because my own understanding, at least of what I think learning is, has been evolving. Um, I would have previously said, you know, it's about taking in information and um, uh, also experience and applying that in the world. Um, and uh, but thinking about that from more of a sort of an intellectual kind of heady um, idea perspective. And really now seeing learning as being much more full-bodied, um, this sort of full sensor that we have, um, all of our nerve endings in our nervous system, um, and also our emotions, which, you know, I think I was raised in such a way to be taught that sometimes emotions get in the way of learning or emotions are not rational and yet um, emotions can tell us a lot about uh, ourselves, about the world, um, and about what different parts of us, right, are um, needing or um, responding to. So it's it's kind of a to me now more of an evolutionary kind of phenomenon. It's it's what we do to self generate to um, sense the world within us, between us, and around us and to adapt our behaviors accordingly. And sometimes that means doing the same thing over and over and over again because it works or it appears to. And sometimes that means um, needing to change our behavior because it doesn't really work so much anymore uh, in a given context. Um, and so there's a significant piece of awareness uh, around that as well. So uh, that's my rather long-winded way of thinking about learning right now. There's some commonalities or some points in common from what you said over the past um, couple of uh, a few minutes. And, and, and then first of all, it started with, with Jeremy Lent and his book, Web of Meaning. I imagine that's, um, that's the one you were referring to. I know he's writing a, a third one and I haven't heard that it, that it came out yet. Uh, so Web of Meaning and, and then you talk about regeneration as a word that's already overused. And, and that wasn't necessarily the case six months ago. I do feel that in this type of work and in, in this line of work, there, there is, again, this uh, other layer that you brought up about, about sensing, about feeling, about the embodied experience. 
all of these kind of come together. Just to start off fairly softly, I guess, in, in terms of, of where we are with this word regeneration, how do we see things changing so much in the last six months when it comes to regeneration? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how we see it necessarily changing so fast. In other words, what's been the tipping point for, for that? That's a, That would be an interesting sociological um, exploration. I, mean, I think I, I think there is something to be celebrated in that. It's you know, it's it's akin to me of you know people not using the words climate change, and there can be sort of denial in that. And the words that we use matter because they have everything to do with um, our awareness and 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 culture and and what we talk about with other people. Um, but as with anything, I think when it becomes overused, overused. What do I mean by that? I think it can just be used in so many different contexts that it's you're actually using a word to mean either subtle, subtly or very different kinds of things. Um, and we know, just as was the case with, um, you know, talking about things as being green or sustainable, um, it can be greenwashed or, I guess, regeneration washed. And so I think along with the celebration just comes a, a, a bit of a, a vigilance or uh, maybe we call it just care to make sure that when we're using the words with different people or they're being used in different contexts that we we just understand what people people mean. Um, I mean, that is certainly I do a fair amount of work around, you know, justice and equity and, and the same thing happens there, right? Everybody, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are using the word equity or racial equity. Um, there's a lot of conversation about how many people are serious about that or what it even means to be serious about that. And I do think that there is a reasonable conversation to be had about um, different interpretations of the terms that still make it legitimate, right? That people are not just trying to pull the wool over somebody else's eyes, as in putting out a statement, but it has nothing to do with reality or intent. Um, so I think it can be helpful in that sense that it really does generate a conversation about um, what do any of us mean by this? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, and how could different interpretations of that term actually come together to make something more powerful? Because um, in fact, I learned about the term regeneration initially from Carol Sanford and Bill Reed. And um, Bill was a neighbor of mine when I was living in Arlington, Massachusetts. And I really appreciated his reframing of sustainability to think about regeneration as being something else. And that wasn't just um a neat little trick he was doing he was really saying this is what most people generally mean when they talk about the word sustainability or what they're expecting to come of their work if they're supporting sustainability um, as opposed to supporting these self-renewing processes in different kinds of living systems and at least from my perspective Regenesis, of which he's a part, and Carol and others, and the people who I know who are doing the most impressive work around regenerating landscapes or um, uh, regenerating other kinds of living systems, they really do have an understanding of what we're now seeing much more, even on LinkedIn, of these uh, these stories of, of the buffalo, right, returning to the prairie and being able to regenerate the grasslands or what's happening in agroforestry when you do integrate these different elements of an ecosystem or when you bring the wolves back to you know uh yellowstone national park um there is a real scientific understanding that of course is longer than just mainstream western science about uh you know what it takes to continue to nurture the health of living systems including ourselves our communities and the rest. So, um, to me, it's exciting, um, and it, and it and it also requires, I think, some some care and attention, um, and and hopefully, you know, people are willing to have those conversations as opposed to just purely defend their stance. Uh, because even some of my longest teacher, my oldest teachers in this domain, I have some questions about what they may may be missing. Um, and I think the best teachers realize, oh, maybe I was missing something, right? Um, um, while continuing to 
defend things that they feel like are are worth defending and not just because it's their ego that they're defending. And this is the reason why we ask or we start every conversation asking the question, what is learning or how do you define learning? Because that's also a word, especially when we talk to schools and education, clearly to state the obvious that it's in every single um, moment of, of a school's life, but we never really stop to think about what that is and sustainability. We don't really think about what that is. And, and the UN's given us a nice little definition about meeting the needs of the present and not taking away from you know, future generations' ability to meet the needs of the future or something like that. A definition I don't really carry in my head because of that word need that I found quite troublesome. And, and I guess regeneration is a fascinating term because of just what you said, the, these, these holding onto our positions, which is anything but regenerative um, uh, sticking behind that wall. And I heard Maggie Favretti said, learning is regenerative so you can't be an expert in anything because you're always learning and learning and learning and, and the more you learn the more you're learning so you, you just can't stand still there yeah it's all a process it's all a process it's all flow um yeah i mean i think that um something in what you said just now uh in the here's part of my you know new learning and paying attention to my body kind of did a mm. Like what, like it reacted to something you said as something, I wonder about that. That is, I think that we can stand on something that we believe in or we feel or that we understand to be true and defend it with, um, with integrity. Um, and then I guess the question is to, to what end, right? Are we doing that sort of defending, um, this is what just came to mind was um and you've probably seen and i can't remember if in our previous conversations um but i'm a part of this respectful confrontation community under the um it's it's under the the teaching of joe weston and the weston network and part of our practice uh, is to actually get in the habit of being able to identify and name our needs and express those to one another Right. And to stand firm in our needs, not to be um, to say, oh, I don't really need that or I don't really want that or I don't really believe that. But to be clear and to sort of honorably come face to face with somebody and expect the other person is going to say that as well. And then to um, engage in a real robust dialogue around that where you're not trying to kill each other or cancel each other, but you are. um kind of like in, in in martial arts practice um and and joe is a, a very skilled in martial arts it's you're you're trying to bring out the most best in each other right in that kind of sparring which feels like it's so foreign in some ways to what's going on right now right certainly in social media or in political debates we're not trying to bring the best out in each other we're trying to destroy the other person their ideas um, you know, delete them from social media. Uh, but what if there was sort of an honorable practice of saying, this is what I stand for right now, or this is what I believe right now, and and get into sharing why that's so, to develop that awareness and hearing that from somebody else, um, and to be able to sort of weave through conversation, maybe something neither of you expected. You may not change either's perspective at the end of the day, but you could still walk away with deep respect for what that other person was bringing. And to me, that can be regenerative um, because you're changing a relationship or you're changing feeling. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's what's coming up for me. No, it, it does make sense. And, and I think it's that part of the the, the, the relationship the, the, that you suggest that is so important because we're tending and caring for what's between us. We might not necessarily have the same perspective. We're tending what's between us as opposed to erecting walls and lobbing uh, cannonballs at one another. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if, in fact, um, again, what just sort of popped to mind as you just said that is my eldest daughter, who's 16 and a half, um, you know, she's Growing up here in the Amherst Public Schools, if you don't know the Amherst Public Schools, they're very progressive. You know, you've got, you swing your arm, you hit a university in this community or a professor. Um, and uh, so, you know, my kids are, are, are reading Ibram Kendi in, 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 in school and uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer and the likes. Um, we lived previously up in uh, rural Vermont in a community that's very, um, 
poor, uh, at least in terms of free and reduced lunches. And my daughter developed a relationship with a girl who's um, really, really sweet, smart, um, kind, very driven in her own way and comes from a very different kind of family and has absorbed a very different way of, of viewing the world. I mean, her, all of her family were Trump supporters and, um, you know, the, the the views they have on the vaccine or COVID are very different than, than our families. And yet, Annabelle, my daughter, and she have been able to cultivate this beautiful relationship where there's an essence that they really love about each other and they can really respect and talk about how they've been raised in different ways and think about different things in different contexts while still, at least for now, sort of maintaining their perspective. But I can even see how the conversations that Annabelle has had with her have been leading her to want to go to a, a college or university that is not just so purely progressive. She knows that she'll be missing a big part of the world. Um, so to me, that is regenerative. That 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 um, it doesn't just replenish somebody and support who they are in a static kind of way. But it enlivens it enlivens her to see there's more to the world, right? And so there's not just a, a stasis about regeneration to me. It's about the enlivenment piece um, that's that's just coming to me. And I see that with her friend as well. That she doesn't feel threatened by my daughter. She feels brought to life by their conversations. Um, is even where there's difference, the fact that they can have that conversation they know is really special. Let's talk about equity, a word that like regeneration is used and misused, that in many ways is connected to regeneration, yet is oftentimes like regeneration and sustainability used in order to advance certain agendas rather than look for the thriving of the whole or how we can make situation better, how we can improve lives, how we can tap the strength within. How, how do you feel about equity as a concept and as a word, specifically in terms of the battle lines that are often drawn around the world and around the misinterpretation of the roots of the word and, and the roots of the reason for inequity? Yeah, well, I mean, there's clearly some battle lines being drawn in some extreme ways that I think often make more news headlines than, I, you know, I don't know how much of it is the reality all over the U.S. because I think we, we you know, media tends to play into our outrage and will, you know, be pretty selective of the things they know will, will um, trigger us. But clearly, you know, there are there are differences between where I live in the state of Massachusetts and specifically Western Massachusetts in terms of, uh, you know, what gets incorporated into the curriculum, whose voices um, being explicit about the realities of racism or racialized disparities, meaning, you know, when you break down data uh, in a particular instance, you don't just say, you know, there are poor people and there are people who have more resources, but you say, let's double click on that and see what the racial identities or ethnic identities are of the people in poverty or the people that have more resources. And there are clearly places that don't want to engage in that conversation for whatever reason, because they feel that it, it exposes an inconvenient truth or because it feels threatening or because they don't know how to handle um, that information. Um, I do think it's delicate, and I think that um, it's not for the the faint of of heart. Um, you know, there's a lot being written right now about um, how equity consulting and work is being done in very uneven ways, um, which is in part because places, schools, organizations have different starting points, but it also comes down to the standpoint of who the interventionist is. And um, I think that's where it's, you know, it's getting uh, interesting, which means it's not just interesting, it sometimes can be quite painful, where, um, you know, the point of equity work may be intentionally or unintentionally about shaming and blaming, um, uh, or it may be about just checking boxes. So we're kind of, you know, going to those two extremes. It's like, well, we've got, you know, we've increased the number of uh, 
people of this identity in this particular role were done, um, which doesn't say anything about, you know, overall uh, power or a sense of being included or belonging. Um, or like I said, you can go to this other extreme, which can um, feel like it uh, res results in shaming and blaming. And sometimes that's unintended, but I, I have seen instances where it is very intentional and, and generally humans don't respond so well to that. And often kids don't respond so well to that. And so I think it is, it's a delicate way to figure out how to bring in the truth when you're an educator, right? In such a way that helps a child or a teen remain open to that truth and that information and to help them make sense of it. And it can't just be in an intellectual way. Again, so if we just reduce learning down to this, it denies everything else below the neck, our soma, our emotional responses, you know, so much more being written now about trauma and intergenerational trauma, um, you know, that our bodies know something that our minds may not be fully aware of. And so it does require a kind of um, full-bodied awareness and care when you're working with kids and certainly to think about then how that might play out socially, right? Um, where bullying is a reality, um, uh, so where, where you know, things carry beyond what, what happens in a classroom, you know, hearing about kids who are more conservative in their leaning in certain school districts who get ostracized because of that, um, which, again, may just have only to do with their family of origin. That's what they return to every every night. And so um, it, it's, comp it's complex. Um, I don't think that's a reason not to do the work um, at all. But I think this is where learning comes in, that as practitioners, we have to keep getting better at what we are doing and understanding um, what our intent is, um, how things are received, how things impact different groups, and to take care, to just really take good care. First, do no harm. Now, we have a lot of listeners who are outside the United States, and I'm hoping you can give us your views, uh, your thoughts on the reasons why in the United States, equity can be such a delicate issue, a question, and sometimes described as a powder keg. For those who aren't in the United States, you don't live that every day. Can you just go into the sentiments and the reasons why this may be the case so that we can all better understand? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the history of this country and the U.S. You know, I mean, the, the realities of what have been done here to indigenous peoples, to the descendants of African slaves, to others who look like them, who continued to come, I mean, like the caste system that very much does exist in the U.S., as Isabel Wilkerson has written about, but that doesn't exist in such a you know publicly acknowledged way can make it um, uh, a real minefield. Um, and uh, I think again, also just what has been created in in bodies in this country. Uh, I mean, Resma Menicum writes about it better than anybody. Uh, in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, the trauma that exists in black bodies, the trauma that exists in white bodies, the trauma that exists in police bodies in particular that uh, are often in charge of upholding the system as it is. It's just, it, it, it's kind of like a powder keg. And in fact, there was a, a, an article written about Ferguson, Missouri, which uh, you may remember a number of years ago became a real powder keg that outlines the history leading to that explosion. When you go back and look at all the um, intersecting policies uh, from redlining and the like to everything was done post-World War II in terms of who the GI Bill applied to and didn't apply to, none of this is taught, right? None of this is taught. And so I think, the, or it's taught in very few places. And so I think it can be very disruptive. It can be for those who know the truth, it's infuriating to say the least. And for those who are discovering the truth for the first time, it's a shock to the system. It's as if, you know, it's like that book, uh, was it Richard Lewin, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It's, uh, I, I've worked with kids in high school 
in rural districts prior to moving to Massachusetts when I was in upstate New York, where I, I ran an after-school program where part of what we did was take kids to do quote-unquote service projects, but we would talk about the issues. And I remember taking some rural kids into the quote-unquote inner city, it was not a big city, but and it was really an interface of a group of predominantly white kids and a predominantly, predominantly black kids. And they got into a, a conversation just about their um, respective realities. And driving home, I had two of the girls, white girls, melt down. Um, now, I know that some people might call that sort of white girl tears. Um, they were in total distress because they realized they were not being taught this in school and felt like they couldn't trust their school, couldn't trust their teachers. That's a hell of a lot for a young mind to grapple with, right? Um, so I think it's just, it's, it's, it's very loaded. Um, and there's a way in which identity has become so politicized. Um, because of all of that history, but also because of something I don't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's a way that we, we in this country have so politicized identity and, and in some cases weaponized it, um, that it can be, you know, yeah, a real minefield and can make things at least much worse before they get better. And, and maybe that's actually, in fact, what needs to happen. Um, there is a, um, a framework that we use in our race equity work, which talks about the seven phases of, 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 of racial equity. And, and it kind of takes this U-shape. So there's almost like this predictable devolution, an unraveling, which I think is a part of learning, right? It's, uh, we're not blank slates. We have to sort of unlearn or leave behind. And again, that's not just simply a computer delete. Uh, there's a whole embodied and emotional reaction that can come up around that and then take us to the bottom of this U, which is essentially like this cloud of unknowing where we just don't really know maybe anymore who we are or what we think. And the only way out is real relational trust building. And, um, and in a sense, that's where genuine equity work begins. Um, but there's a lot of being undone, as my colleague Kelly Bates would say. Um, and she's a black woman that will be undone before we do the work of, of racial equity. I, I think that, you know, as relates to sustainability, it, 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 in some ways it's less about identity, but we also know sustainability can become politicized, right? Uh, are you a tree hugger? And maybe some of its more uh, innocuous forms or, you know, the, the this belief that anybody who denies climate change actually wants to kill you or kill the planet, um, where it can become very um, personalized and feel like a sort of identity threat. Um, so, um, I'm, you know, those two certainly can be interwoven in that sense. But it's, but it's also undeniable, as you said earlier, that, you know, often it is the case that we treat people the way we treat the planet or we treat the planet the way we would treat certain people and from a sort of hyper-capitalist perspective where we relegate natural the natural world and living systems to an other status or an inanimate status or something that is purely utilitarian we've done the same with entire groups of people slaves uh immigrants of various stripes uh, over time um yeah, and and workers generally right now, right, and in, in many still in many in, in in many realms where you 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 know in the ag sector where I spend a lot of time, you you, you have people who just are undocumented, undocumented. We don't see them. Right? I mean, it's just we invisibilize sort of the inconvenient truth of what actually makes the system work. Um, so we're paying the price for that big time. I'm thinking a lot about the fact that. The people who are outside the United States might look on the United States with a bit of curiosity. They might hear echoes of what's going on in the States. They don't necessarily know how things are unfolding. At the same time, people in the United States don't necessarily have the awareness that other people don't connect this with what's going on in the United States. We have this global dominant narrative that has been so colonial that has been 
so mired in homogenizing us, in changing our value system in, in a way that doesn't allow for many differences. And at the same time, the dominant narrative exists in local contexts, in local forms. And so locally, one dominant narrative might not be the same as, as the other. And then, of course, there's all the subversive narratives and the resistance narratives. Sometimes those are global as well. There's so many different forces that are pushing and pulling at the same time. Where might we go to step back and take a deep breath? What is that? Uh, was it William Gibson, the science fiction writer, who once said, the, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed? I feel like, you know, the new narrative, in a sense, is here, but it's unevenly distributed. I, I mean, you're clearly seeing that in, you know, the younger generation, um, you know, maybe sort of uh, uh, dramatically personified in somebody like Greta, um, but many others too, right, who are uh, leading new movements um, and really speaking truth to power. Um, I think that's what's surfacing in many organizations in the U.S. right now, where there are real generational pain points and um, and and tensions and outright conflict around, you know, bringing equity into the workplace or you know really being serious about about climate um so i think that's i think i think it's there uh you know the dominant system certainly its job is to fight back and keep itself going uh, and that's very alive and well but um you know going back to our original question about or one of the early questions about, you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing that a term like regeneration is growing? I mean, I think it is good. It is good. When when dominant groups start to use the language of, you know, the revolutionaries, you know, you're onto something because they know those are powerful terms. They're seeing others use it and they're trying to co-opt it. Um, so, um, you know, but again, it's 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 unevenly distributed, and and it feels like there are um, there's quite a bit of factionalization that prevents some of this from moving forward. So, you know, one of the things that um, we've been doing with Food Solutions New England, which is this network I've been supporting with anywhere between a quarter and a third of my work time, it's a six state regional network focused in the New England area of the United States. And um, ostensibly, we were brought together to create um, more of a robust regional food system for the sake of sustainability. And that quickly evolved into putting equity at the center because we understood you cannot have a sustainable system without it being equitable. Those two, two things need to be woven together. Um, and so, you know, that's been uh, that's been evolving over these last uh, ten years, and uh, we also realized that there was uh, a need in all of that to create, um, as a focal point of strategy, a new a new narrative, and a new narrative that would help understand that food is a system, and so therefore it requires systemic change, and that. Uh, every time you purchase food, that's a political act in terms of who you're supporting, and that we need to understand the inequitable foundations, uh, the oppressive foundations of the dominant food system, so that we can, um, again, make it sustainable as integrated of, of, of equity. And we recognize that in order to do this, we need to replicate really the spirit of, of, of Dr. King who you know passed as he passed he was murdered um you know standing up for this poor people's movement that reverend barber has now you know rekindled along with others in the form of the poor people's campaign which really does lift up these multiple forces at play in the dominant narrative of militarism, of, uh, of racism, of, of, of just all out assault on the planet, all out assault on the poor, um, and that we need to bring uh, sort of fusion organizing across movements to create a bigger we. And to me, that's the biggest challenge right now. Um, because of a lot of the factionalization, the pandemic has not helped, I don't think. We know that tight ties have gotten tighter and loose ties have gotten looser during the pandemic, and we need to get back to more of that bridging work um, 
So uh, the cracks are there. They just need to uh, meet each other and maybe more of a, a bigger fractal pattern. Bring it in a little Jeremy Lent. Um, uh, and, 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 and that I really actually view as a, a, a big part of the work that I do because I work with so many social justice organizations and networks. The quote, I mean, this sort of the work that I don't necessarily get paid for is to connect those movements to each other. It's just a passion and it's a, uh, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Um, and uh, it just feels so necessary. Curtis, what's on your mind? What's on your horizons in the next uh, few years? or in the next few days, or in the next few months? What, what are you thinking about? Well, um, I'm thinking about how uh, the personal intersects with the political, how um, healing on more of a personal or interpersonal level can translate into um, larger systems change in the sense that, you know, systems are built on all of these relationships and interactions and exchanges um and definitely taking a cue from adrian marie brown who said you know small is all <laughs> we start you know we try and engage systems at these really huge levels you know i, I just feel like it's a fool's errand it's they're just too big too burly too slow to change and and we've got to get back down to these uh smaller building blocks so how does how does that you know how does how does that happen? What does that look like? Um, is one question that I have. Um, you know, another question I have in a very self-focused way is how I can continue to heal um, from various things that you know have happened to me over over the years and maybe even prior to my birth. I mean, I am on one side of my family, as I said, uh, goes back to the 1600s of arrival in this country. And so my ancestors have certainly been a part of creating this country and contributed to its, um, you know, both some of the wonders of it, but also some of the real dehumanizing um, things that have happened here. And so I believe in um, ancestral trauma and also just knowing that, you know, all of my relatives going back to Europe where there have been war after war after war after war and just imagining how that has been carried down epigenetically in bodies, you know, what what is mine to do to sort of um, heal, not just for my own sake, but for the sake of my daughters, for their children, um, and for the people that I, I work with. Um, and 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 almost using my my myself as a little bit of a of a case state a, a, a case in in um, regeneration as I lean into this kind of full bodied exploration of things like uh, energy work and tai chi and qigong and um, herbalism and acupressure um, which all just fascinates me um, as somebody who's always been interested in it but never felt like I quote unquote unquote needed it. Uh, but because of something that happened a couple of years ago uh, with a benign tumor that showed up on my acoustic nerve, thank God it was benign, but its treatment by Western medicine in the form of radiation sent my body into uh, very uh, uncomfortable places. And so I've been trying to sort of heal from that, um, as well as just having grown up with a severely mentally ill mother who just recently passed and sort of going through grief work which i also feel like is not just about me there's something about grief that is very cultural uh and that uh at least in the states it has it, it, there's just almost no place for it um and i feel like grief is is a key part of of being able to regenerate um so that's something i'm thinking about and leaning into and then i guess the last thing i'll say for now is um I've been working with a, a colleague, uh, Dr. Sa Sally Gurner, who's in her 70s now, semi-retired, and um, just a beautiful person and thinker who has been writing about what we are calling now um, energy systems science, which is looking at how energy in various forms and the dynamics of energy contribute to healthy or not so healthy systems. And so my passion is to kind of bring the practitioner side to this impressive body of, uh, of academic writing that she's done to invite people into a conversation about what energy is 
in its various forms and how the laws of, of, of energy and flow have everything to do with whether our bodies, our communities, our economies, and our ecosystems are healthy and salutogenic, right? A able to continue to produce health and wholeness for themselves. So um, actively developing a curriculum um, and uh, hope to deliver something in the UK actually in June. Um, and that's just, you know, it's not about a course, it's about an ongoing exploration of seeing the world in a, a different way that is not so materialist, that is not so frozen and fixed, that is not so mechanical, um, and, and, and creating tangible ways to actually be able to, to do good things. And, and this is where I'm, I'm interested just through, through the entire thread of your response is all those tiny little cracks in the dominant system. It's not the big ones that we need to tend to, it's the tiny ones because that's all we can tend to. And as you mentioned and your, your stories of healing about this circularity of, of decay, of crack, of breaking, maybe we need to push those cracks a little bit wider in order for us to heal, which is a bit of a, of a paradox, but it, it, it completely makes sense in, in, that, in, in that regard. And then you mentioned the energy piece and, and this goes back to us not lobbing cannonballs across the wall, but rather seeing what is between us, that in between, that in between everything that we do, that is feels to me like the appreciation of how we're connected to life and also the greatest barrier to getting anywhere because that just seems so so kooky to so many people, to, to use the technical term. Um, and... <laughs> But but it is it is this this idea of, of connection and and you mentioned how COVID loosens the loose ties and tightens the tight ones. I, I wonder what your response would be just to this idea of people being much like with regeneration more open to this idea of dynamic flows that we ourselves are vibrations and energy. Yeah, well, I feel like there's much more openness to it now than there 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 has been in in many you know, mainstream sort of circles. And of course, we know that this has uh, been, um, you know, a part of many indigenous cultures, worldviews, and it's been such an amazing thing to see the likes of Tyson Yunkaporta and Robin Wall Kimmerer amongst um, others, Sherry Mitchell here in our region, get the real attention that I feel like I want to say they deserve, but it's kind of like that. Make, that makes it, it sort of over individualizes it in a sense. But it's just like these are <laughs> these are longstanding ideas and practices and perspectives that we need, right? That have been sort of maligned and sidelined, and um, so that's that's just very exciting. And, and and even to see how you know the sciences themselves as they come together in more transdisciplinary ways sort of their own practice of betweenness that starts to allow them to see things that they wouldn't if they just keep themselves in boxes. And so that includes flow, that includes energy, that includes connections um, that are what actually make systems work, not just the individual components. So I do think there's hope, even as there is just tremendous resistance in um, certainly, yeah, uh, what was I just was just watching a British show that I love. Oh, <clears throat> right. Just watching uh, Doc Martin, which is a show that my wife and I really love. Um, and, but just watching how they'll make these little quips every now and then that really uplifts mainstream westernized medicine and sidelines anything that might be like herbalism or smack of this or that. And that, that's significant, right? Because that's seeping into people's consciousness as they're they're watching that so it's that that dominant worldview is is in so many different places and yet again i think it is like where where there are are more and more cracks um those cracks will eventually eventually come together but i also think it's not just about you know them canceling one worldview at the expense of the other it's it's saying that and, and it seems like that's just a that's that that's just will become another casualty of dualism um, and sort of the westernized mind. Um, and when how can we sort of hold up the both and 
um, and say that, uh, you know, traditional, more indigenous ways of, of doing science can stand alongside more recent westernized, you know, Eurocentric ways of doing science and be in, in, in reasonable conversation with each other and have value to contribute to um, our longer term species thriving while, while supporting other species to, to survive and thrive as well. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I think it's just also as I get more bold about using some of these terms in different settings, um, it reminds me of actually when I started my work with the Interaction Institute for Social Change about uh, 20 years ago, um, we would walk into certain um, rooms and do this training on collaborative skills and, and, and we would say it's not just about the skills you use, it's about your interior condition that you bring to the work of change that matters. Um, and when we try to invite people to um, explain what is that interior condition, they would use a lot of different words. And I was always realized there was one word they wouldn't tend to mention. And so I started using, which is the word love. And so it's like, it kind of sounds like you're saying the word love. And I would say, say that in certain rooms, let's say 18 years ago, and people would kind of laugh nervously and shift in their chairs. Um, that squirming doesn't happen really anymore at all. Um, and uh, I, I have a sense that we're on the same kind of trajectory with things like energy and flow and um, you know some of the other things that you and I would like to see in, in more regular circulation out there. Listen, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you for listening. We are in collaboration, as always, with Intrepid Ed News. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. The Intrepid Ed News website is www.intrepidednews.com. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five stars. Again, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. And until next time, bye-bye.